Do a superior job and people and opportunities will come to you. Welcome to Off the Record, a podcast featuring leaders on IBJ Media's Indiana 250 list. I'm Nate Feltman, CEO of IBJ Media, which publishes the Indiana 250, a list of the most influential business people in the state. I'm excited to be joined by former Indiana Governor Mitch Daniels, whom I had the great fortune to work for and with in various capacities over the last 20 years. Mitch Daniels already had a long list of accomplishments under his belt by the time he was sworn in as Indiana's 49th governor in 2005, and he didn't slow down when his two terms in office ended eight years later. Mitch went on to become president of Purdue University, where he famously froze tuition, breaking a 36-year string of increases. Affordability, access, and accountability were all hallmarks of his decade-long tenure at Purdue. But at the same time, Purdue doubled down on its top-notch academic programs and made commercialization of research a priority. Mitch's long career in public service began in the early 1970s under then-Indianapolis Mayor Richard Luger. Mitch interned for Luger while studying at Princeton University and then joined Luger's staff full-time after graduation, eventually becoming one of the mayor's most trusted advisors. Luger, of course, went on to become Indiana's longest-serving U.S. Senator, and Mitch went to Washington with him, serving as Senator Luger's first chief of staff. Working for Senator Luger put Mitch on a path to working for two U.S. presidents. At just 36 years old, he became chief political advisor to President Ronald Reagan and almost two decades later served as director of the Office of Management and Budget under President George W. Bush. Between working for Presidents Reagan and Bush, Mitch came home to Indianapolis, joining Eli Lilly and Company, and eventually serving as the company's president of North American Pharmaceutical Operations. Of course, all of this happened before his successful run for governor in 2004. As governor, he quickly got Indiana's fiscal house in order, erasing billions of dollars of debt. He reformed government to work more efficiently and provide better service to Indiana citizens. He made generational investments in Indiana's highways and infrastructure with the innovative Major Moves program and pushed through one of the biggest tax cuts in state history and so much more. There's way too much to cover in the time we have today, but we're going to try. Governor, welcome to Off the Record Podcast. Thanks so much for being here today. Appreciate the invitation. Well, Governor, IBJ is excited to honor you next week when we present you with the Michael A. Carroll Award, an honor that recognizes selfless public service in honor of Mike Carroll, who was deputy mayor of Indianapolis when you were working with then Mayor Richard Luger. You worked with Mayor Luger and Mike Carroll at a time when Indianapolis was just starting to come back from a period of decline. What was it about Mayor Luger and his approach to government that caused you to want to work with him? First of all, it was a time in which the crisis of the cities, that was the catchphrase, was probably the number one topic on the domestic agenda. And so cities everywhere were watching their tax bases erode and their citizens, a lot of their citizens flee to suburbs and Indianapolis was in that category. Plus, to be honest, uh, uh, we had an inferiority complex. India, no place was the, you know, sometimes was the way we were referred to. So here comes this 30-some-year-old businessman, Boy Scout, Eagle Scout, full of energy. And uh, it was hard not to, to be excited by that and want to be associated with it. And you've said, I know, that no one had a bigger influence on you than, than Luger. If you had to summarize key learnings from Senator Luger, how would you do that? I always thought he was the epitome of public service. He uh, had the whole package, I often said. First of all, ironclad integrity. Never saw him make a dishonest decision or selfish one. 
intelligence. We're talking about a Rhodes Scholar here and an incredible work ethic. He was all about the business, all about the work and the public interest. So um, being around somebody like that, you hope a little of it at least rubbed off on countless of us. I know it did. In addition to Richard Luger, can you talk about maybe others that have influenced your approach to leadership and public service and what they might have taught you? President Reagan, obviously, he uh, used to say uh, some people seek positions of high responsibility to be something, uh, others to do something, be one of those. And I took that, I hope I took that to heart, uh, not knowing that a time in elected office would ever come, but I certainly had major duties assigned to me following my time with him. And from that point on, I, I hope that I lived up somewhat to that ideal. In other words, don't worry about reputation. Don't worry about, goodness sake, don't be gaming for any, another job or a promotion or something. Just do the very best you can with what's in front of you. Let results be your only goal and let that be your trademark. Are there other core values that drive your leadership style, Mitch? No, I think results is what I finally came to believe has to be the, the target, the focus, the center of the bullseye. And there are corollaries to that. There are consequences to that. One of them is that change always unsettles people, always discomforts some people, angers some people who worry that their uh, special interests, vested interests, credentials will somehow be diminished. And um, uh, you have to accept the fact that if you produce results, make change happen, that uh, there will be uh, criticism. And you finally, I, I realized that simply have to take that on board as part of the job, cost of doing business, and trust that in the end, I always used to say, results are Trump. Now, I, I need to find a new way to put that, but, <laughs> but I think you know what I'm saying. I do. I remember one of your sayings that dogs don't bark at parked cars, meaning uh, let's be action-oriented, and that what you referred to, but I love some of those Mitch sayings. I've collected a few. I've originated some, and I've collected a few over time. That was a, a very successful farm operator, a woman, up around Muncie, said that to me at a down period one time when we were taking on all kinds of flack that I thought was untrue and unfair and malicious and so forth. And that's what she told me, Mitch, don't worry about it. Dogs don't bark at parked cars. And I went back and I said to you know folks like you, that's great advice. We're, we're never parking the car. Well, whether as governor of Indiana or president of Purdue, you spent a lot of time in executive leadership positions, but you could have taken a different path. When Dan Quayle was elected vice president in 1988, vacating one of Indiana's U.S. Senate seats, then Governor Robert Orr was interested in appointing you to Quayle's place in the U.S. Senate. You turned that opportunity down, of course, and just recently there was a movement afoot encouraging you to run for the Senate seat that will be vacated by Mike Braun. And of course, once again, you declined to pursue that course. Is there a common thread between your two decisions not to pursue a Senate seat? No, they're completely different. And in a way, I think it's regrettable because it reflects a change in the Senate itself. No, the, the first call was all about family. It was really something later on after arriving in office to walk into the little breakfast room at the governor's residence and remember that the last time I was there had been, whatever that was, 16 years before Bob Orr suggested this uh, notion to me. No, at the time it was very, very hard because I had thought, especially serving at the time I did with the person I did in the Senate, that would be the 
a tremendous uh, career opportunity. But then you know, we were only back in Indiana a year or a little more. We'd moved back for a very specific reason. Sherry and I wanted to raise the girls here. They were two, four, six, and eight at the time. It was the best move we ever made. So as incredibly exciting and alluring as the idea was, I just couldn't talk myself into it. And I'm very, very glad I didn't. Now, later on, this more recent uh, suggestion is completely different. I had a look at the job and said, that's just not a job I want anymore, or at least not at this time in my life. And uh, we, we don't have to go into all the reasons, but I think I said, not the job for me, not the town for me, and not the way I want to spend my life at this stage. Well, of course, you ultimately only ran for office once and then for re-election as governor. Was running for office something that you always considered or was there something that inspired you or pushed you to run for governor that just wasn't there before? I won't say I never thought of it, but, but that would have been so early on in life and I abandoned the idea. And I really thought after passing on Senate on a silver platter, as we just discussed, that that's that. I went into business. I was in business and proceeded in business and thought I'd continue there until I quit working. So, no, I didn't anticipate it. Events, one thing led to another. In terms of what motivated me, much as I had watched the city I grew up in slip and stagnate and be at risk of being left behind, I could see the exact same problems of Indiana. We were going nowhere and while competitors were moving forward. I thought our citizens deserved better. I wasn't alone in that. And all sorts of people, uh, for reasons best known to them, came to me and suggested this. And so uh, ultimately I decided, let's go try. A lot of young people today can't even imagine getting into politics, just given the way discourse is today. Would you encourage a young person to think about running for office or putting yourself in their shoes, say, gosh, maybe there's another better way to serve? I would encourage it. We better encourage it. Hopefully that things have a way of turning, and I hope maybe the rather um, unfortunate nature of our current political system and, and discourse will burn itself out, and new, younger people will come along and say that's just not the way a democracy ought to operate. So yeah, I would, as I often have, encourage them not to do it as a sole activity in life and not to make it the first thing they do. Go learn a trade, learn a business, build a little experience, uh, maybe a little bit of financial stability, and then bring that to bear on public life. Don't rush into it early. You'll have too narrow a perspective. You won't really understand the uh, needs and aspirations of your fellow citizens. Well, switching gears to the federal deficit and spending, your time as OMB director for President George W. Bush gave you an inside look and understanding of how our federal government budgeting process works and the levers available to pull in terms of curtailing spending. Today, neither party seems serious about curbing the extraordinary national debt that continues to grow. Just in the last four years, we've gone from 100% debt to GDP to now 120% debt to GDP, a level not seen since World War II. Are there any takeaways from your experience serving as budget director for President Bush that might inform how we go about halting runaway spending? Or do you think it's going to take an economic catastrophe for politicians to get serious about attacking our spiraling debt? Twelve years ago, I wrote a book, and it was about mainly about this subject. And I expressed a lot of optimism that we were the kind of people, we the American people, were the kind who could make an adult judgment, a long-term judgment, put our future ahead of today, put our children's interests uh, at least on a par with our own. 
and suggested a way to do that. And I said, mathematically provable at the time, if we get started, we can avert really unfairness and the betrayal of some promises we've made to um, our elderly and, and to each other in our safety net programs. I couldn't write that book today, unfortunately. And you were right. Both parties are, in my judgment, equally culpable. And um, that's a shame because now, as your question contemplates, I'm, I'm resigned to the fact that it's going to take a cataclysm. People sort of say this all the time. Well, you know, Congress only acts when they have to. And then that's generally not the worst outcome, but it will be a very bad outcome when this happens. And I say when because the arithmetic is inexorable. And we have waited too long and let the promises pile up to the extent that uh, we're going to have a, a moment of, I believe, economic great difficulty, maybe even worse, a sense of social betrayal. Um, people have been told false things about the safety net program, and that's where two-thirds of the money gets spent these days. And so, unfortunately, we have procrastinated. Both parties' uh, hands are dirty on this. And um, it's really uh, an indictment, I'm afraid, of our maturity as a, a self-governing people, that we couldn't do the grown-up things. But so be it. When the crunch comes, I hope we will find a way through it. But, you know, the, we're going to need to understand the mortal enemies of Social Security, Medicare, and the safety net programs are the people who say don't change anything. They are driving this over the canyon rim. And when that's happening, you want the person at the wheel to turn it. Not to step on the gas, but that's what the American people continue to be offered. Well, in order to solve problems like that, it, it seems that the parties and the politicians in our country need to come together, but but we're more divided than ever before. Both parties seem beholden to the extremists in, in each party, and that bipartisanship needed to solve our most pressing issues like the national debt and immigration just doesn't seem to exist. Do you have any thoughts on how we can begin to work together in a more productive way? Well, an emergency is one way, and it at least has brought about some degree of collaboration temporarily in the past. I, you know, I was there in the White House on 9-11. I was in rooms for the next couple months at least that have not been replicated since. I'm talking about meetings in, in which I represented the president in the Speaker of the House's office, the leaders of both houses, both parties around one table, they all looked at each other. Many of them had been serving for many years and said, this has never happened before. And some things were done collectively and collaboratively then. As we know, it, it didn't last, but at least it offered an example of how some degree of, of cooperation can uh, be forced by events. Let's take a quick break. This is Off the Record Podcast. Get caught up on the state's top business news every business day with the Inside Indiana Business Radio On Demand podcast. Available now at InsideIndianaBusiness.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Off the Record Podcast. I'm Nate Feltman, CEO of IBJ Media, and I'm talking with former Indiana Governor and Purdue President Mitch Daniels. Well, turning now to your time as governor, Mitch, to put it mildly, Indiana has done a much better job than the federal government at keeping our spending under control. Our state's current era of fiscal responsibility really started with you as governor. You raised billions of dollars of debt during your first term and took Indiana's credit rating to AAA status where it has remained. Would you say that accomplishment is the one you are most proud of or would you point to others? I think 
taking care of the taxpayer's money is simply a prerequisite. It's a it's a down payment. It's a fundamental responsibility. And so we did that first, and uh, I wanted to do it even faster than we did it, but we got it done in a year and a half. And that allowed us to move on to the things that I thought were new and and additive. But no, I mean, simply being a good steward of other people's money is a duty. It's not an accomplishment. And so that, but that did allow us to, to get on to some things that I believe are and will serve the state very well for a, a long time. I know every time I drive up 31 to my hometown of South Bend, uh, I save at least 30 minutes. And uh, so we all have become more efficient. And then I drove down to Bloomington this uh, this past weekend and, and I-69 is uh, well on its way to being uh, finally completed. And those were on the drawing board for, for years. Is that one of the accomplishments that- it's, Yeah, it's way up there. That's what we call the major moves uh, program. The, the toll road transaction, which won all these awards, transaction of the year, transaction of the century, <laughs> at least in our state's situation. We were very fortunate about the timing. But $4 billion of cash and a much better toll road, uh, we built, we rebuilt half the state road miles, resurfaced them, One rebuilt a third of the state bridges, and then all those new big projects you mentioned and so many others, the High River Bridges and the Hoosier Heartland Corridor and the Fort Road, and some that, as you say, had been promised and on the books forever, and the state had no way to pay for them. So now, again this year, I forget how many years in a row, CNBC ranks the states for infrastructure, Indiana number one, again, and it all traces to that. So I remember, I think, probably saying to you and others at the time, many of these other things we've done, reform of this, reform of that, somebody wants to come and undo them, they might, but they're not going to take those bridges and roads up. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Well, and and I know from uh, studying economic development that the infrastructure upgrades and investments mean everything when it comes to economic development. So it's kind of the precursor for, for that development to take place. Especially if you're located where we are and call yourself the crossroads of America when, you know, used to say, well, if you're the crossroads, you better pave the intersection. And it's to this day, it's uh, not a month goes by. I don't read about a new investment and the uh, efficiency of movement of goods and logistics and so forth that all those investments dramatically enhanced has been a a big winner for the state. What was the biggest challenge you faced as governor? And is there something that you really hoped that you wanted to get accomplished that maybe you were frustrated that you weren't able to get accomplished? Oh, always. No, I could name a couple of those. I mean, uh, I thought we had a great plan. Having had the spectacular success of monetizing the toll road, toll road losing money, still at debt after 50 years, you know, and uh, turned it into the success it became. I said, hey, let's monetize the growth in the lottery revenue and turn it into free community college for every young person in a family of modest means or less. And couldn't get that done. Tennessee copied it and a couple other places have basically done that. But that was one that I thought got away. Uh, We suggested a so-called commerce connector, a sort of a second belt around Indianapolis, which I do think had it happen would have brought new economic life to some of the cities out at a at a certain distance from the town and alleviated a lot of congestion in the Indy metro area, which was beginning to to get crowded. For years, I've loved to kid my friends in New York, Washington, Philadelphia, Boston areas, you know, how do you live spending all your life in a car? But we're getting some problems of our own. That would have made some difference. 
I remember on your last days of governor, you had a clock on your desk that probably going on for maybe the last year of the countdown. So I know you were working hard all the way to the last minute thinking about what else can we get accomplished in those last uh, final months. Jeb Bush gave me that clock. It was one of those little atomic clocks and I can't find it. Is that right? I couldn't have lost it, but uh, it's it's a memento I would like to have. I remember I took it to the state of the state's speech, the last one, the eighth one, and put it up on the podium. And I said to the legislature, we're going to use every second, every minute that's still on that clock to trying to keep moving uh, Indiana ahead. And we did, you know. You heard me say back then, I don't get this uh, short session thing. We don't do much in the election year. And heck with that. You know, we got to do something big every year. In the eighth year, you're supposed, the duck's supposed to be lame. And I used to say, well, look, lame ducks can still fly. And 2012, 11 and 12 were two of the biggest years legislatively and otherwise that the state had ever seen. So Jeb gave me that clock for exactly that reason. And I hope we lived up to it. One of the first things you did as governor was create the public-private Indiana Economic Development Corporation, putting the governor rather than the lieutenant governor in charge of the state's economic development efforts. The IEDC, of course, continues to rack up record investments in our state. Why was the IEDC, this new approach, critical for furthering our state's economic efforts? Anything would have been better than what we had, honestly. You know, a, a very tired bureaucracy. I think my main observation was it didn't have any people who'd actually done any business. And so I had heard from too many business people. They'd had a look at Indiana and decided, no, that uh, those folks don't get it and they won't be on our side. And so that was the, the first thing was to be able to move it outside of government so it could be quicker and more nimble. It could raise some resources so we could get aggressive and proactive, not just hope the phone rings once in a while. And then have real business people as a part of it who would uh, try to see uh, a potential new company or growth of a company from the other side of the table. So we were always trying to make the point that we want you to invest here, we want you to come here and grow here. Then our job starts when you make that decision. We're on your side. We want you to succeed. And so I think that, that's what happened. You know, a lot of other states have copied it since then, which should tell you something about the model. I think one of the most important things was that the governor was in charge now of economic development. And I recall you having the Secretary of Commerce sit right next to you at, at cabinet meetings and, and you would ask the Secretary of Commerce, is there anything that you need to bring and retain jobs in the state? And I think that made all the difference in the world. What was the first item of business? I'm not a big proponent of a lot of meetings, but when we had a cabinet meeting, that's exactly right. It was all for a purpose. Symbols sometimes can matter. And so, yes, originally Pat Miller, Mickey Maurer, there were some other talent came along in that job. I always had them sit right there, and that was always the first question. How's everything? How are we doing growing opportunity and jobs for Hoosiers? And what can any of these other departments be doing better to uh, help you win the next program? You brought so many good ideas and new ideas to state government, including the concept that government can be run efficiently and effectively and provide strong customer service like your BMV reforms that people always remember. The idea to lease the toll road, which brought in billions for unprecedented infrastructure improvements like the ones we talked about, US-31 and I-69. These are projects that have been on the drawing board for decades that you were able to finally bring to fruition. For Indiana to take the next leap forward and aim higher, as you so often said, what big ideas would you say could help really move Indiana forward in a manner that could bring more prosperity for more Hoosiers? 
I'm sure you can get other and better answers from other people, but I'll just tell you, too, that look like they're in need of attention to me. And they're both problems that have crept up over the last 10 or 12 years. And that is our healthcare costs and our utility costs. I'm very, very troubled by how both have gotten a little out of hand. You know, our our goal for eight years was to make this the most attractive, affordable state where people knew that if they invested their money, they had a better chance to get it back and maybe a little extra. And that, I, I'm afraid, is eroding as uh, our health care costs driven primarily, I think, by a hospital concentration of doctors' practices as within the hospital system. And uh, on the uh, utility side, I'm not sure what the prescription is, but I can tell you that I, I was stunned. I took my off it for a while. I was stunned to see how far we had fallen away. And, you know, in the knowledge economy and the IT economy and the silicon economy that we aspire to be uh, leaders in, the cost of electricity is really going to matter. We were very competitive 20 years, 15, even 12 years ago. So those would be in my target range if I had something to do with it. After you finished your two terms as governor, it wasn't long before you became president of Purdue. Why was that opportunity appealing to you? Well, initially it wasn't. And I thought, and I said no more than once, but I'll tell you when I finally came to my senses and realized it would be a great thing to do was as I sat back and I asked myself, what job other than the one I'll be leaving, if a person did a reasonable job, could contribute more to the long-term success of Indiana and the prosperity of people in our state. And the answer was that President Purdue was the other great opportunity. Again, we're in a such a knowledge economy, such a scientifically and technologically driven economy. The single greatest asset any state can have right now is a really premier STEM-based research university, especially one that can deliver at scale, not just a small number of elite engineers and scientists, but large numbers. And Purdue's now unexcelled at that. Produce each year more STEM graduates in absolute numbers than just about anybody in the whole country. And the research and the new companies that we hope will succeed and grow right here. So that was it. And thank goodness I came to my senses. It was just a terrifically fulfilling and I got to say fun thing to do. I read a lot about all the effort to engage students and some of the fun things that you did to do that. It looked like you were having a, a lot of fun the 10 years you were there. I was there. having a blast. But, you know, there's a serious purpose in this. I decided a long time ago, I remember starting at least at Eli Lilly. Um, I've always uh, said, you know, told people when they ask for advice and so forth about a bigger job, I said, look, uh, take the stairs, not the elevator, meaning don't skip the lower levels of an organization. That's where you'll learn things and encourage people to do their own jobs better, but you'll learn things that make you better. So whether it was riding with sales reps or visiting customers in business, whether it was traveling the state relentlessly for 10 years, staying overnight in homes, not in people I didn't know, not in motels. Um, and at Purdue, of course, it was the students, the staff, and um, I had so much to learn. And I was still learning my last day there. And so particularly for me, it was real important. But I think it's good practice, even if somebody's pretty familiar with the enterprise they're leading. Know your customers. And uh, that's what you yeah. just described. And your coworkers. Absolutely. One of the things that you pursued at Purdue was the reorganization of IUPUI. And shortly before you retired from Purdue, you and IU President Pamela Witten announced an agreement to dissolve 
i.e. PUI, so that both universities could establish their own presence uh, separately here in Indianapolis. What do you think this could mean for Indianapolis? I think it means great things. And I was so grateful to uh, President Witten for her openness to have a look at this. IUPUI served really, really well for a half a century. But uh, again, think about the world we've moved into. There was a huge appetite, and had been, here in Indianapolis for kind of technology, engineering, computer science, the kinds of things that Purdue excels in. And we're really the biggest city in our competitive tier that didn't have that. And it wasn't going to happen within the, the structure we had. And so separating that and quickly growing it and lifting it to the standards of West Lafayette is going to, I think, be a big, big boost. I'll tell you something else I hope will happen, I believe will happen. We'll be offering very quickly here to Purdue students the chance to maybe not spend four years at Indianapolis. I hope a majority of them will spend one or two years maybe completing their Purdue degree here while they work for who? An Indiana business. I've always been really focused. You know, when I first ran for governor, I kept talking about brain drain. And we got to build the kind of state where our talented young people don't feel they need to leave to realize their dreams. And uh, we've made a lot of headway there. Indiana has been a net importer of college graduates now for a, a while. Not enough, but at least we're in the black, so to speak. So I've been really thinking about brain gain, all the talent that comes to Purdue. I use well Notre Dame. How do we capture more of those folks? And this change in Indianapolis can do that. And I know IU has high ambitions, too, to excel in health sciences and things that we know are growth industries. So you know very well that Frequently, the best thing you can do for a business is divide it. I always think about the fact that uh, when I was at Lilly, and I was wrong about this, by the way, we had a big debate about whether to separate the medical device business from the pharmaceutical business. I didn't want to do it because I was trying to cross-sell these things all across North America. But it was the best decision for the business. And within a year, both Lilly and what became Guidant were worth more than Lilly had been in market cap just yesterday. So I sort of think of it like that, letting each piece of this institution excel at what it does best, I think can produce great value beyond where we were going to get. Are there other things that Indiana could be doing to retain our talent, our graduates? You've mentioned one that's, uh, of course, maybe the top opportunity, but are there other things that we can do to make Indiana a more attractive option for young people? Just trying to keep modernizing, you know, what we're working on very hard at Purdue right now and the state is is working on, trying to become a new hub of the semiconductor industry is a good example. Because if it works, there will be lots of jobs and a new kind of job that we haven't had much of before. So we've known for a long time we want to diversify. It's really good to be the most manufacturing intensive state in the country. Somebody has to be, but that's not enough. And so we do need to diversify, and there's one obvious opportunity. Staying on talent for a minute, uh, the Mitch Daniels Leadership Foundation is an organization that might also play a role in helping to retain and attract talent. I know that people who have shown promise in the first part of their careers are committed to our state, are prime targets for the fellowship class at the Mitch Daniels Leadership Foundation. How did this foundation originally come about, and uh, how is it maybe different from where it started? One day when I had a few months left in the last job, some people I knew and respected said they wanted to come see me and they, that they walked in with this idea. And they had already raised some money and they said, is it okay? Well, what are you supposed to say? You know. Right. So I uh, said, uh, thank you and yes, sure. And the program has evolved a little bit. 
to the description you just gave, and I'm really excited about that. The idea is that I think this state, any state, could really benefit from, I always say, a, a statewide network of change agents, people who have had some exposure to what big change means, how high is up, so to say, and uh, how you make it happen or might make it happen and have an ambition to do that in their home communities and maybe because they know each other and are a growing sort of fraternity of such people that, um, you know, who knows, maybe one day they'll decide to collaborate on a big project of benefit to the public interest of the whole state. How have you been spending your time since retirement from Purdue at the end of last year, and, and what's next? Well, I'm not lacking for things to do. I made the mistake I cautioned other people not to make, said yes to too many things maybe, but uh, it's pretty full plate. First of all, I am still the chair of the Purdue Research Foundation, where we do economic development and where we do tech transfer, and that's one way to you know stay connected to things there. I'm proudly associated with the Liberty Fund, which is uh, individual liberty needs more friends right now. There are people who seem to have forgotten its blessings and eager from either the left or the right to infringe on the personal freedom of others. And so uh, I'm trying to be of, of some use to that great nonprofit. I'm involved in three or four businesses, board member or otherwise. I guess I'm leaving out a thing or two, but all those things. I'm still writing columns for the Washington Post. And just brought out a book at Purdue called Boiler Up, which is a compilation of things for the last 10 years and some reflections on on all of that. So I'm not loafing. I've got an idea. If you get a little bored, the majority of Americans are not happy with either likely presidential candidate. Maybe give that some thought. Well, the audience can't see me giving you the, uh, you know, <laughs> the Dracula sign, but uh, thanks. But uh, I'm, I'm sure the nation can do better. Well, Mitch, we've made it to Off the Record Speed Round, where you give me quick answers to a series of questions. Are you ready? I'll try. Favorite movie? Well, Animal House got to be second. I'm going to pick one you would never, you might not even know about, but it just affected me growing up. Beau Jest with uh, Ray Milan, Gary Cooper, Brian Dunleavy, and so forth. It's a French Foreign Legion movie full of, you know, valor and honor and doing the right thing. And that's probably number one from sentimental reasons. Favorite place to vacation? The Greenbrier in West Virginia. Uh, Sherry and I uh, had, had taken our girls there years ago, bought a house there. It's really just about the only place I've been for 20 years. haven't been able to take too many of any kind. And uh, when we can, we go down there. Favorite musical artist? Dead or Alive? Either. Okay, Dead. Stevie Ray Vaughan, Alive, George Strait. What's the first thing you do in the morning? Push-ups. Title of the last book you read? Fringes of Power, the uh, John Colville, the, the diaries of Churchill's uh, wartime and after the war, private secretary. What food can you not live without? I'm going to say steak. I don't eat that much of it, but if I was never going to have one again, it would, I'd regret it. Best advice you ever received? Mac Baldridge, for whom the Baldridge Quality Award is named, uh, told me at a very low moment during the Reagan presidency, I'd done something, wound up all over the front pages, thought reflected poorly on the side, and he, he could see that. He came up to me in the cabinet room before a meeting and said, put his hand on my shoulder and said, uh, look, uh, get over it. He said, uh, good judgment comes from experience, and experience comes from bad judgment. Advice for a young person who wants to become a leader? Put your head down, do the job in front of you. Don't be gaming, don't be networking, or don't spend all your effort on that. 
do a superior job and people and opportunities will come to you. Person you wish would run for president? Jack Ryan. Unfortunately, he's fictional, so he's in those Clancy uh, <laughs> books. You know, I don't got to pick a person. I am gonna, I'm going to say I think somebody with military experience or some grasp of of military and and probably intelligence matters, we're going to need somebody like that. We haven't always, but at the moment in history we're moving into, I'd be uneasy with somebody to whom all those things were brand new. Governor Mitch Daniels, thank you so much for joining me on the Indiana 250 podcast, and thank you for all you've done for our great state. Thank you so much. No need, but appreciate the chance to be with you. Thanks to Governor Mitch Daniels for our conversation today. To learn more about other leaders and IBJ Media's Indiana 250 list, go to indiana250.com and look for a page two feature each week in IBJ. We'll be back with a new Indiana 250 off-the-record conversation soon.